is there actually an environmental impact if we change policy and procedure and is it worth us pursuing or b is it something that you know it'll, make, it'll help us feel better but it's not really getting at the root source of the issue here So Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial, at home, in the car, 102.9, anywhere you are. Here today with another Making Sense of Climate session with our guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Steve, although it's uh, the late March or the mid-March weather is sort of challenging. It's a great day. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we've got some rain. It's supposed to turn to snow, so I'm ready. We'll see what happens, you know. <laughs> it's also pie day. I, how did that creep up on me? I'm usually baking a pie today, but it's funny. My I my <laughs> my baby brother is today's his birthday, right? Oh, so we happy went birthday. through well, happy birthday to him. But we went through decades of not recognizing. It is Pi Day, right? And in the last 10 years or so, all of a sudden it's Pi Day, which is a great, great thing. I mean, it's very entertaining. Gets lots of discussions of, you know, what's an irrational number versus uh, what exactly is Pi. So that's a good good thing. Yeah. And how do you define Pi? So does Boston cream pie count or is it just, <laughs> you know, crusted pies? <laughs> those are some of those family table discussions. So we have a guest today, and a guest and family of that matter is just a nice segue to Avery Pilardi is joining us, and she's the daughter of my youngest sister. So there's a family connection there. But Avery, welcome to the Making Sense of Climate, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ted and Steve, or Uncle Steve, <laughs> um, for having me today. I'm excited for this conversation intro to why is Avery what's the family forget the family relationship why why is Avery joining this conversation today well I saw an article that your mother had shared through social channels um you were touted your group was touted for your work in achieving some sustainable uh operations and you got recognized for your work so that's cool and it's like well wait a minute Healthcare. We haven't really talked about healthcare, and yet there is an impact, which we'll get into a little bit here. Um, so, why don't you tell us your short story, if you will, as to how you got into that role and some of what you did, and then we'll just we'll let the conversation flow. Yeah, that sounds great. And so, I guess taking it back to my undergraduate and graduate uh, degrees, and what I spent a lot of time studying was historical climate as well as future climate change. So when we start to talk about future climate, the climate projections have substantial ranges. You can talk about three feet of uh, potential sea level rise in Boston to 10 feet of uh, sea level rise. So to me, this, when looking at this, there's a substantial opportunity to really start to question why are we doing the things that we're doing and how do we start to reduce that so we can get closer to that lower projection. So this really trans transitions into my existing career. So taking science and translating it in a way to have a tangible and actionable impact in the healthcare uh, environment. So really in my existing role, I end up being the liaison between healthcare administration, 
um, clinicians, staff, as well as really external um, outside policymakers as well in the state of Massachusetts, as well as the city of Boston, and looking at how do we pursue solutions in healthcare that allows us to address our community health outcomes and address a lot of our long-term sustainability goals. So a lot of big wafty words in there, but ultimately in the world of healthcare, I'm uh, similar to Ted in being the climate guide. I am the climate guide for uh, my, my organization. And, and if I could, your organization is a hospital here in the Boston area, right? So specifically you're, you're tied to one, one, and that gives you a focus of things to think about and specific things to deal with, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I will disclaim that everything I say today is my own personal and professional experience, um, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the IDMC. But this is speaking from experience and what I've learned within that organization. And I think that was one of the opportunities that came to you know the light bulb goes off when I saw the article. It was like, whoa, this is there's some things there that in while in your specific area, but there are in other corporate areas where there's a corporate impact. And how do we, the little guy, make sense, which is one of the reasons why we started this. So Ted's helping me specifically make sense of climate, because as you indicated, it's a whole lot of acronyms, a whole lot of big terms. And there's some fantastical info. And how do we make sense of it? What can we do individually? Um, and then there is the rub. So you have an interesting role to the extent that you have a specific group, but then you have to do a liaison with all the other indirect parties. And I'm sure you've got some insights into lessons learned, what to do, what not to do. There's definitely a lot of lessons learned, to say, <laughs> to say the least, on that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm the liaison. I'd say I'm the environmental climate expert and I am relying on all of the healthcare specialists, all the physicians, all the nurses to really understand how, how is healthcare currently operating and where's the opportunity to rethink what we're doing. So we're not only ensuring the best standard and highest quality of patient care, but also thinking about the environment as we're, as we're performing these operations. So at, at the highest level, if you're looking at healthcare, it's a 24-7 operation. It's consuming a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of water, a whole lot of materials in order to deliver patient care. And patients are going there to treat their symptoms for, for, whatever, for whatever illness that is bringing them to our four walls. And as we treat them, we're now, because we're consuming all this energy and all this all this, all these materials, we're actually contributing ourselves to climate. And looking at health, the U.S. healthcare, it's 8.5 percent of the greenhouse gas emissions in this country. So then, as you're contributing to climate, as everyone has learned on this podcast, there are some consequences of that and potential public health impacts. And so, as we're as you're consuming healthcare, you're creating this positive feedback loop of increasing greenhouse gas emissions, increasing the negative impact on public health, causing patients to return to our four walls. So my role is to look at how can we disrupt some of that positive feedback loop and actually ensure that healthcare is looking beyond our four walls and helping our community, or at least at the bare minimum, not having a negative impact on our community. Um, and so it gets complicated. 
to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I, I, I would just, I was, I don't know if you saw the expression on my face, but to, to repeat, I thought you said that healthcare comprises something like eight and a half percent of the greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. I mean, that's an enormous number, right? That's a huge impact. Exactly. That's, that is what is being estimated so far. And it's, it's, it's so fascinating because you hear these numbers all you hear in numbers all the time about well transportation is 25% buildings are 30% yada agriculture blah blah so it's it's to the for the understanding climate speak right it's like there's there's a thousand ways to divvy up the carbon dioxide emissions right and when you look and when you class everything that a hospital or the healthcare industry does together you get this big chunk and so it becomes an interesting avenue to think about things Every one other question, I, I, you talked about being the liaison in a what amounts to a corporate setting, right? Lots of competing interests, right? In my experience, that's a, can oftentimes be a tough role. I, and the question I was going to ask, and I'll ask you, but I'll say it about myself, is like, I'm the middle child of a big family. So I have always done a lot of liaising, so to speak. The, I mean, I congratulate you on managing the different departments because they don't all necessarily share your interests, right? I mean, so you have to, it's a tough job, right? And probably that would happen in almost any corporate environment, right? But that's a, a, an interesting thing. So I congratulate you, I guess, on your, your noble intention there. Well, thank you. And I, maybe I learned it as the middle child as well, you know, figuring out how to balance everyone's priorities and, um, all aligning eventually, hopefully to achieve the same goal. But yeah, it definitely, it takes a different way for an organization to look at a role because traditionally corporate environments operate in silos and you're all focused on your own goals, your own initiatives, where my role, technically I do sit in the facilities department, but I have, or our leadership by default has to be supportive of me working across the entire organization. Um, to develop the programs and to really elevate the need and the um, ways that we can standardize our policies or procedures to have a better environmental impact. So it takes a lot of listening and understanding of what, as an organization, we're trying to achieve and where where are there some of the easy opportunities to reduce our environmental impact and um, I can definitely start to get into those of how you look at healthcare and how you start to break it down and understand what those opportunities potentially are. Yeah, we can get into that a little bit because I think in the article, and we can certainly include the article in a, as a link into the show notes so people can read that background and help to understand a little bit of what you did there, but we'll take it kind of at a higher level and some of the key takeaways that people can say, oh, that's well, how do we do that here? So in, clearly, while you're currently there doing this, the road that the company healthcare system, in your case specifically, had started a long time ago with removing mercury temperature checks. Um, so it's it's been a long road. It may still be a long road because it's not all going to get done overnight anyway. But I think your basic question is 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 just that. While we have goals to obviously continue to serve patients and be good healthcare providers, how can we do it in a better climate way? And thereby you start asking, well, why are we doing this? What, what, what are we doing here? And then seeing if 
maybe there's a climate impact to that. So, and I think you go at kind of the supply chain and then pick pieces that within that to uh, try and focus on. Obviously, being mindful, you've a liaison role in this big complex thing. What makes sense to do, et cetera? So, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, definitely. So, supply chain, I'd say, is a a large piece of the puzzle. Um, I'm going to take a step back and just define or look at how organizations account for carbon emissions. So there's this this terminology called scope one, two, and three emissions. So scope one is looking at your direct emissions. So things that are directly owned within your organization. So in healthcare, that's anesthetic gases, things that help put you to sleep when you go into surgery. Um, so things you don't think about, as well as the refrigerants that are utilized on site to help cool our infrastructure, as well as the vehicles that we own directly that help transport transport patients back and forth between our buildings or supplies back and forth between our buildings. So that's scope one. And then you get into scope two, which is looking at the indirect um, purchased energy that we're using. So this becomes a an, another large chunk of greenhouse gas emissions associated with healthcare. And so there's opportunities there to start to reduce the amount of energy you're consuming, transition to the renewable energy or purchase renewable energy um, and start to transition to electricity, which becomes very complicated in healthcare, but that's that's a whole nother story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, just did the indirect, just to, for the phrase, the indirect energy inputs, I think you said, that basically amounts to like natural gas that heats the hospital, right? Simply when you boil it all down, that's what you get to, right? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah the purchase energy. So your electricity, your chilled water, your, your natural gas, everything to keep us operating 24 mm-hmm. seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some, some hospitals are connected to the grid, like all residential properties, or there are some hospitals that are connected to co-generation plants. So cooling, heating power plants. Um, so they're on their own microgrid. Um, but yes, ultimately. And the last piece, the scope three, which Steve, you were you, you were getting to, is then the indirect emissions associated with our operations. So everything that is associated with our supply chain, so the purchases coming into our facilities, the vehicles that are coming in and the emissions associated with them, the waste disposal, and how all of the waste that flows through our facilities um, is processed at the end at the end point, as well as employee commuting. Um, there are some solutions where you can have people remote, but it's healthcare. Not everyone can be remote if you if you want to be operating in a hospital. Um, and so this piece actually ends up being over 80% of healthcare emissions. Um, so a very large opportunity, but also the most complicated and le- least straightforward way hmm. because it requires even more liaisoning with external organizations and with your suppliers and with the manufacturers of all of the all of the goods and services that you're um, bringing in to the to healthcare. Avery, just I think that so for me it took a long personally a long time for the concept of the supply chain even what the heck it meant right to finally the penny drop you say oh, okay now I so supply chain is basically all of the people that supply the things the hospital uses. And the chain then is all of the people that supply stuff to the people that supply stuff to the hospital and then the people that supply. So you start out with, you know, very simple things that slowly become more. And all along that chain of supplying, there's carbon dioxide emissions, right? And you're just saying is that for hospital, 
that's a, a big chunk, right? Just what comes in the door is already emitted a bunch of carbon dioxide by the time it gets there. And the job, so the supply chain means the hospital has to go back and talk to the people that are supplying and say, please reduce, please change your practice, which I'm sure is they all enthusiastically embrace. Every supplier wants <laughs> to change at your behest, right? But is, is that a fair statement of what the supply chain means? Yeah, very fair and a good way to break it down. And um, it, to your point, it does become complicated when you say, hey, do something differently um, because we care about carbon emissions and that's not necessarily we've, how we've been designed or how the supply chain has uh previously operated. I think that may be one of the insights that if you do in your department does that kind of analysis, so you know, it's kind of 80% of your, your space. And if you do the analysis that, oh, if we can tackle this particular piece, then we can reduce not just greenhouse gas, but it may have a cost impact as well. And thereby, now you can go back to them and say, hey, you can save money and help us. And now there's a win-win as opposed to what are you doing? Why are we changing this? <laughs> exactly. And I think the challenging piece is the what is going to actually have an impact? Because right now, what actually across across this country, um, in response to the Department of Health and Human Services climate pledge, there in that pledge, there is a line item about understanding your supply chain. Um, your supply chain emissions and figuring out how to actually track it and then as a result act from it. And so it requires supply chain um, suppliers transparency, manufacturers transparency, mm. again on what is that embodied carbon? what what is actually coming to our facilities and then what of those line items, then what can we actually act upon and have the largest impact? So for now, it's these, high level discussions of knowing we need to look at this, but the first step is just getting the data so we can even act. I, I, I was, I was going to say the note I took when I read your article was say that you can, you can manage what you measure. Right? So the first thing to do is to get a baseline of what emissions are involved in the supply chain. And I guess I was just going to throw out a kind of generic example, I think for a hospital, not like the biggest one, but in this day and age, everyone needs to have a mask, a COVID mask on, right? Everyone, so this, the hospital is getting COVID masks all the time, right? And the question is, I would, I would guess a lot of those are now made in China. So to the point, now you have to say, contact someone in China and say, what's your carbon dioxide emission for making this mask that I'm using? And that gets really complicated. So it's, uh, what you're saying is the, the first step, and I think it's the wise one, is at least to fully understand what it is as this, these things come in the door, what's the carbon dioxide associated with it that you need to worry about? That's fair. That's, uh, yeah. And from there, also, what can you actually act upon? Because healthcare, by necessity, we do in many cases, not in all cases, and that's the part that is the opportunity, need to have disposable products for patient safety, for infection prevention. But there are, but healthcare is larger than just direct patient care, there's a large piece of administration and um, that you can start to look at opportunities there for reuse, reduction, transitioning to different products that aren't going to have any impact on patient care, but will ultimately still reduce your carbon footprint. And then the next more challenging level where you start to pull in infection control and infection prevention is, okay, well, what are we currently doing that is fully disposable, but does it all need to be? 
Like there are, we do use some reusable devices that are sterilized and disinfected and are a great practice um, when you're talking about the environment. And then there are some other designed as single use devices that you can actually send out to a third party vendor that's FDA certified and approved to make them like new, reprocess them, and then we purchase them back. So you're creating that circular supply chain um, with those types of services. But there's, there are some areas of healthcare, which by default, we are going to have to waste, but that's, ne that's necessary waste. And that's, that's okay. And mm -hmm. there's plenty of other opportunity elsewhere too. Well, I think that's, that's the, the, the razor edge you're walking along in the healthcare industry is that you have to be safe, right? The whole point is to make people healthier, right? You have to avoid infection. So there's these probably, uh, compromise is the wrong word, but understanding that you have to have as to how to do this in a circular way, but still maintain the extremely high level of care, right? So that's an interesting challenge for the healthcare industry. I'm sure it's echoed in other industries, but yeah, I mean, it's particularly high profile with, with healthcare. And high profile as well. Certainly the media has been all over supply chain coming out of pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, there are obviously a whole bunch of interruptions of a variety of sort. You know, companies were shut down due to the pandemic and thereby they weren't producing the goods that needed to move, et cetera. And then we also saw pictures during, uh, you know, where the all the container ships were stuck off the coast of California trying to get in to process, et cetera. The supply chain simply is long <laughs> and complex um and then trying to focus within you know this health arena in your case in specific how, how, where do you make sense of it and then and then try to make those adjustments yeah that's that's a challenge and yeah it becomes even more challenging if you're talking about supply chain disruptions and uh, i mean from a resilience standpoint so making sure we can continue to run our operations and continue to be available 24 seven. Um, it's you want to diversify your supply chain. So purchase from more than one vendor when you're talking about masks, when you're talking about various mm -hmm. other PPE um, and all the other supplies. But then that calculation of what is your carbon impact becomes that much more complicated because you're working with that many more suppliers. Mm -hmm. So it's this um, I find it to be a fun, fun challenge to figure out, but not every, everyone, not everyone would think that way. I know there are some mathematicians who want to get into that modeling and the masterpiece and, you know, the polynomial equations just keep going up and up and up and people will get like, oh, no, please. <laughs> Avery, I was intrigued by the statement about the reusing, reuse of medical devices and, uh, I mean, when I think reuse medical devices, I think of very simple things. I say, don't use a syringe, okay, blah, 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 blah. But I think that there are, correct me if I'm wrong, there are more complex single-use devices that cost a lot of money and then get basically get thrown away and could be and have, quite honestly, what's called embodied carbon. That is to say, there's lots of carbon that was emitted in order to make this complicated thing and uh, finding ways to not throw it away after one use is important, right? Is that is that some something you guys probably look at as well, right? Yep, we do. And I think the where my role becomes helpful and useful in some ways is elevating that embodied carbon piece. 
because from a efficiency standpoint, or at least at face value, it seems easier, right? To just use something, throw it away. Like we're trying to care for as many patients as possible. That's easier. But, and, and it may look cheaper because of that efficiency piece. But if you're starting to look at these devices do cost a substantial amount of money, as well as the piece that we're not looking at is all the natural resources that went into creating this device in the first place. And so it, a lot of my job is putting value to that and advocating for that embodied carbon that we may not visually see on as a line item on our books, but it does matter. And it is a factor that we should consider before automatically switching to a single use device. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that opens up a whole other discussion about something. Again, this is for people listening this I mean, how do you quantify that kind of embodied carbon? There's something called the social cost of carbon. I'm sure you've heard of And the, to the listener. It is, is the dollar dollars assigned that is like the societal damage of emitting carbon. And so that's one way to quantify this kind of thing that you would probably talk about in your uh, discussions with people in in your organization, right? Is that do you use that, or is that like too too far outside the realm of you know practical discussion with the people that you talk to? I'd say I use it in concept, um, but in practice, and especially when we're looking at so many different devices and so many so many different supplies in our supply chain. As Ted, I'm sure you know, um, everything we touch has a different life cycle, a different way to calculate that social cost, that mm. that embodied carbon. And so from a time efficiency standpoint, my job is to get to the value as quickly as possible while it, and getting the point across without spending the labor of understanding, was it harvest out in South America? <laughs> Right, right, who was impacted. Right. So it's yeah, in yeah, concept, yeah, yeah. I definitely use it, but in reality, it's hard to implement per uh, line item. Right. Not always easy to crunch down into a sound bite. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the other areas I think in the um, article uh, would help some other listeners is tap into as well. You've got this uh, reference to the cool food pledge. So while we've been spending some time talking about obviously the medical devices, et cetera, food is something still in the hospital. It's a, that's a fairly big impact, especially for patients and for visitors. And yet that's also an arena that you, you play in or attempt to play in. Yeah, so the Cool Food Pledge is a pledge that the World Resource Institute has put out there. So healthcare can join, um, as well as other organizations across across the globe can be a part of um, this pledge, which is looking at your food purchases. And so looking at how do you reduce your greenhouse gas emissions associated with that part of your supply chain, so just food. Um, and so it does become a slightly easier conversation and healthcare when you're just looking at the food piece of the supply chain. Because um, from a um, greenhouse gas emission standpoint, if you're looking across the globe, it's about a third of uh, food production is about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And there's different estimates out there, but approximately. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of opportunity to act upon your what you're purchasing. Um, and in short, if you're looking at what creates a lot of carbon emissions in food production, it's animal 
based proteins. And so your cows, your pork, your all your red meat um, out there creates a lot of carbon emissions. And then your plant-based proteins like your beans and your other legumes have a lower carbon footprint. So there's some opportunity to start to rethink some of our menus on how much, not eliminating animal-based proteins altogether, but how much are we offering and can we supplement and add more plant-based proteins to those dishes as well? That in itself is a, no pun intended, healthy discussion because <laughs> clearly there, there's opinions all over that space and anyone who is interested in diets, all you, you, you're probably already aware, so we don't need to go anywhere down that road. But it's from a dollar's perspective within a company, particularly in the healthcare space, obviously the health of the patients is key. So you've got to watch that balance, the dietitian uh, approach, et cetera, and yet try to make some changes and make some adjustments and at least raise the awareness. I, I, yeah. Avery, question, Do you, are you able in the cool food program to think about local local sourcing of things? Uh, so that you, you know, do we get in Massachusetts, do you serve applesauce every day all through the fall and then, then switch over to, to strawberries in June or something? I mean, so there, there is opportunity to look at local, um, and this is going to be a uh, controversial statement, but it's the truth is when you look at carbon emissions, where it's sourced from is actually the smallest piece of the calculation. So the transportation piece um, is a very small factor. I'm not saying it's not a factor, it, it does account for some of the emissions, but in general, if you're looking at mass production um, of food, those that transportation is extremely efficient. When you're looking at local source food, the transportation becomes a little less efficient. Mm -hmm. And so while it's closer, you start to have a little bit of a trade-off there. Um, from, but with that said, outside of the Cool Food Pledge, we like local is still important. We are have a number of partnerships with local farmers to ensure that we have locally sourced food um, on the table. But. I think that's, again, a fascinating object lesson that people think of the farmer's market as a great place and can be, but there's a lot of nuance in discussing, what do they call them, food miles or something? I mean, how, how many miles your food traveled? It's not a simple calculation. I agree with you. Yeah, and it's from a economic standpoint and supporting local businesses, that's where that conversation becomes really important. If you're talking about greenhouse gas emissions, not not as much, but. And then you get into the entire seasonality and clearly here in New England, we've got a short growing season. So that has a little bit more of an impact in terms of what you're trying to do locally that as, as opposed to somebody in a different climate um, would have more opportunity potentially to do that. So. Yeah. And I guess something that, again, slightly different from the carbon emission standpoint, but an opportunity for the corporate world to have is to work with local farmers on forecasting what they will want to purchase um, and committing to a certain amount of apples that they're going to buy this season from that farmer. So from a local farming perspective, it makes it a lot easier and more profitable for them to streamline through less, less, uh, I guess, purchasers of their food. Mm -hmm. uh, and so streamline, streamlines their supply chain, which is beneficial, again, for those. Um, yeah. in our community. 
putting that in another term, kind of the CSAs or community supported agreements, clearly the local farms like that predictability. So they've got, call it 100, 200 people that are going to get a CSA share or however they distribute that. So when you can do that on a corporate basis, now you've got theoretically a larger volume and more concerned or more sustained uh, commitment in terms of, okay, assuming the weather cooperates so we can actually grow it, harvest it, et cetera, they're going to buy everything as opposed to you grow it and then um, where, where am I going to sell it? And that food waste perspective is then where the greenhouse gas emissions come in. Because um, again, if you're talking about, it's not just switching from animal-based proteins to plant-based proteins, it's the waste. The less we waste, the less we have to produce and continue to see, see, uh, feed the same amount of mouths. So the anything we can do to prevent that waste is definitely extremely important. Yeah, the, looking at the full cycle, and I think even going back to, you know, how do you define kind of the carbon impact? Well, if you just look at the purchase price, and you don't consider the cycle end or the life cycle of the product, then you don't consider the carbon impact. So it becomes a little bit, you know, the the counting system we use today with checks and balances, debits and credits was developed way long time ago <laughs> before climate became an item to start quanti quantifying and determining and where this is part of the journey. We're trying to figure it out. <laughs> So, so Avery, one of the topics in the in the article that we're discussing about your efforts uh, focused on the anesthetic gases that the are emitted in the very specific hospital setting of doing surgery, right? So, like, what puts you to sleep so they can uh, do do open heart surgery on you, right? That's it. Turns out those gases, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, are called super super greenhouse gases, which are fantastically more climate warming than carbon dioxide. So you only need to emit a little bit of that kind of gas to have a outsized impact because it's so much more powerful, right? And I think that's a fascinating connection that you wouldn't think of when you think about healthcare. So can you describe the sort of what the deal is with these, again, the new word, right? Vocabulary alert, super greenhouse gases, these things that are doing, you know, way, 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 way more powerful than carbon dioxide. Yeah, so in the world of anesthetics, um, there's four types of gases that we talk about and that you may have experienced if you ever went to surgery. So there's desfluorine, um, which to that super greenhouse gas, it's 2,500 times more potent than carbon dioxide so let's so just say that 2500 yeah. times <laughs> more potent than carbon dioxide so to that to your point ted one little bit of that in one little bit of carbon dioxide we have 2500 times more of um i guess worse of an impact or desfluorine and thankfully though that's the easiest opportunity here but um it can actually be removed from our operating rooms without any impact on patient safety and a really great impact on the environment. Um, and so this has been a movement across the country for operating rooms to slowly stop stocking desfluorine. Um, and a benefit, the reason why it exists in the first place is from an administration standpoint, it's really easy to wake someone up from, with desfluorine. So there's less... There's less math 
that you have to do to get to the point of um, timing the end of the surgery and allowing someone to wake up quickly. Um, and then there's two other gases that can be used in replacement of desflurane. There's isoflurane and sevoflurane, which have very, very minimal impacts compared to um, the next one, which is laughing gas, nitrous oxide. Um, and so used a lot with C-sections and um, it is a, remains in the atmosphere for 114 years, so, which it's needless to say, is not a great thing. Uh, and so there's an opportunity here. It's to transition how you store nitrous oxide. So this is not even actually talking about the delivery of nitrous oxide. There's what you're saying, Laffey, just to go, I mean, I remember reading something uh, somewhere about the Royal Society of London, the Royal Scientific Society of London, and that they were testing, they would have these meetings, this is like 1802, right, and they'd be trying laughing gas, right, and they'd all end up, all these serious people would end up in hysterics with the nitrous oxide, which is now a medical gas. Uh, I think if you're at MIT, sometimes they have bottles in the basement of the dormitories, but we won't go there, right? Uh, <laughs> This is a gas that's used to, but it's also a highly potent greenhouse gas. And there, so you're saying there, there's ways to, in the in just the storage and maintenance of that stuff, aside from the actual use, there's all kinds of opportunities, right? So please tell me more about that. Yeah, so recently um, there's been a lot of looking at nitrous oxide is currently centrally stored in a hospital and then piped through aging infrastructure piped to the various outlets that it's needed. Um, needless to say, gases can very easily leak from those, mm, from those yeah. pipes, especially when you're talking about aging infrastructure and having to maintain the, these pipes. Um, and so there's a movement to start storing them locally in smaller cylinders um, right on the anesthesia machines with the other anesthetic gases so there's less of this leakage throughout the facilities. And so hospitals have started to see that between 40 and 60% was being wasted in piping. So very easy switch is to just store it locally, turn it on when you need it, turn it off when you don't, and have a very large impact on the environment. Um, it's super cheap, which is why it hasn't necessarily been looked at in the past. Because from a financial standpoint, it never drew red flags. But as environmentalists are starting to talk about it, it's starting to become a higher priority of how are we actually delivering nitrous oxide. That's fascinating. Because you're right. Until you start looking at it, all of a sudden the, the, the scales fall from your eyes. And I think that the, I would just point out that, you know, since we want to draw analogies all the time, the same argument. So what you're saying is that the nitrous oxide leaks out of the different pipes through the hospital and you lose 50% of the nitrous oxide essentially in, but the same thing is true with the natural gas methane argument, right? It's the leakage of the gas in transport, right? That is the big problem. And so uh, by looking at it, I guess in the hospital, it's, you know, you have a much easier chance to, uh, to take action. That's great. I mean, that's fascinating. Uh, congratulations on <laughs> seeing that. <laughs> But yeah, I'll have to say it was Providence Health out on the on the West Coast that discovered this and has been 
very heavily promoting and pushing it out to, um, in healthcare. So I, it's not me that discovered this. I'm just, again, being that liaison to help elevate this as an issue and find the solution. I think it's very interesting, The again, to broaden everyone's perspective on what climate issues are. These super gases, they come from a lot, they come from, well, they they come from the refrigerant in your super good heat pump, right? I mean, there's all kinds of super there. In my old industry, there's lots of very bad super greenhouse gases emitted in the semiconductor industry. I think, well, nitrogen trioxide, I think, was one of the really bad ones. But I mean, yeah, I mean, these are the good thing about these super greenhouse gases is they're much more easy to contain because you know where they are, right? There's usually a bottle of it somewhere and everyone knows this funny name gas you're working with, right? So uh, uh, that's a great avenue for the healthcare industry to be considering. I mean, it's, uh, and it's important concept for people trying to make sense of climate that there are these, these other gases, not just carbon dioxide. Yeah, and from a patient standpoint, um, patients can start to ask their anesthesiologist, what gas are they going to be putting them to sleep with? Because um, desflurane isn't removed from every formulary. And so talking to them about from a patient safety standpoint, again, your care comes first above, above anything else, but talking to your provider on, is there an alternative right. to how you're, how you're doing the surgery? It's interesting. I think... And having, as you mentioned at the beginning, your background, education, et cetera, you're, I'm assuming, and it's my assumption, you can certainly expand upon it, you're probably diving into some areas that you had no clue you're going to be diving into as you start trying to figure out, well, how do we do this here? I mean, just the little bit on the anesthesiologist is like, <laughs> there's a lot there. And I'm sure each one of these individual areas you're going to find. So you're kind of learning on a regular basis and obviously helping others learn along the way. Yeah. Learning on a, day on a daily basis every second um, because healthcare is complex. It's in different silos. Delivery of healthcare is different depending on which silo you're in. Um, and that's where relying on the people and the, that are doing or are actually frontline staff and are seeing these usually they they see the problem or they see an opportunity and they don't know how to channel their energy appropriately or how to address it because again corporate worlds are they're complicated hmm. there's who who do you talk to i see an issue who do i talk to and a lot of times they find my name and they're like, I have this problem. I don't know what to do. I just know it's bad. It makes me feel bad. <laughs> how do how do I address it? And so a lot of my job is then figuring out, hey, is there actually an environmental impact if we change policy and procedure? And is it worth us pursuing? Or B, is it something that, you know, it'll, make, it'll help us feel better, but it's not really getting at the root source of the issue here. Um, which may be at a higher level. So a lot of my job is to dig further, ask the questions, why? Why are we doing this? Why Why is it this way? Um, and hope that then I can kind of poke some holes into why, why we're doing what we're doing and um, come up with creative solutions hmm. and collaborate with those experts. Well, I think that was uh, in a 
brief period, an interesting aspect of an interesting avenue of exploration into healthcare. So thank you for taking time to share today. Um, Ted, I, I, I learned some things. You probably learned some things as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it is climate stuff is endlessly there's always a new thing that you hadn't thought of before so this has uh, been a great uh, great opportunity avery i appreciate the time taking the time to chat and hopefully yeah. the listeners as they listen to this they'll be asking similar questions well why <laughs> what, what 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 can we do to change and um thereby overall each our little efforts uh will have an impact somewhere down the line Thank you both. It's It's been a pleasure. And yeah, I just ask everyone to challenge the status quo and don't just assume that what you're currently doing is the best way to do it. And there could be more innovative, exciting ways to accomplish the same task and better for the environment. So, mm. Well said. <laughs> and quick reminder to listeners, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tin Type Tunes in 2008 and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.